Welcome to the Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Rebecca Robbins. Damien is on vacation somewhere in the Pacific Northwest. So yesterday, Damien tweeted a photo of himself standing in front of a giant statue of the communist revolutionary Vladimir Lenin. The caption was entirely in Russian characters. So I guess that's how uh, Damien's vacation is going. <laughs> we miss you, Damien. So meanwhile, we are coming to you from the Boston headquarters of STAT. It is Thursday, March 29th, and here's the lineup for this week. The first quarter is coming to a close, so let's grade the performance of biotechs. Who's getting an A and who flunked the class? Mark Zuckerberg is being hauled into Congress. Pharma executives are not. Why is that? We're going to talk to STAT DC correspondent Aaron Mershon. Rebecca profiled John Arnold. He is the Enron whiz kid turned hedge fund billionaire who's now bankrolling the debate over drug pricing. And speaking of drug pricing, we ask, why is it so hard to figure out the price of a drug? But first, a word from our sponsor. At Takeda, we work tirelessly every day to serve the needs of our patients. We aim to earn the trust of society and our customers through our integrity, fairness, honesty, and perseverance. We strive to be best in class and won't stop until we help create better health and a brighter future for people around the world. Learn more by visiting us at Takeda.com. So it has been a really, really, really bad quarter for biotech stocks, particularly large cap stocks. So Adam, what happened? It seems like it was just days ago that we were all gathered around the table at JP Morgan, dreams and hopes of an M&A fueled quarter dancing in our heads. Yeah, it does. I mean, God, it was just three months ago, but it seems like, you know, we, we all go into JP Morgan like with this fresh start and everyone's optimistic and, you know, three months later, it's... You know, it's it's pretty dismal out there. Uh, you know, just running some numbers. You know, the Nasdaq Biotech Index is is now down for the year, just slightly down for the year. Fund flows are negative by two billion dollars. That means there's two billion dollars that have been taken out of healthcare funds year to date, and uh, large cap stock performance is really terrible right now. And why haven't we seen a meaningful uptick in M&A? I thought that was supposed to happen this quarter. It's true. Like, you know, we came into the year and people were thinking there's going to be a lot of M&A. And other than, you know, kind of one big deal when Celgene bought Juno, we really haven't haven't seen any large M&A. And I think that's kind of one of the reasons why sentiment is is so negative right now. There's like, you know, kind of dashed hopes at this point. So Adam, other than M&A, are there other reasons why the sector's underperforming? Yeah, I mean, again, especially if you look at sort of the large cap uh, biotech stocks, I mean, I think when investors see our companies that have really maturing blockbuster products, you know, with some with significant revenue cliffs coming and, and they're worried about kind of where the companies are going to find replacement products to sort of make up for that lost revenue. And how about politics? How does the looming midterm elections play into this? Yeah, I mean, I think, again, with midterm elections coming up, people are worried about that the drug pricing debate is going to rear its ugly head again, and that's probably keeping people on the sidelines. So let's get more specific about individual companies. Professor Feuerstein. I like that. Professor Feuerstein. I like it. It gives you yeah. an air of sophistication. It does. Absolutely. You know, what grades would you give some of the biggest companies this can we, quarter? Can we start at the bottom? We can. Let's start at the bottom. Celgene, big fat F for the quarter. Uh, you know, if Celgene was a student in a real class, uh, he was in my class, I would be calling Celgene's parents in for a conference. Oof. 
Yeah, it was bad. So, you know, I think Celgene's troubles really started last fall, you know, when they cut long-term financial guidance. And then in the beginning of the year, you know, they did two pretty significant acquisitions, neither of which I think uh, Wall Street has really kind of quite figured out yet. And Celgene's still very heavily reliant on Revlimid, the multiple myeloma drug, right? That's right. And, you know, it makes up about 60% of their revenue. And I think people are worried that, you know, with generic competition coming, you know, where is Celgene going to find new products to replace that revenue? And then, you know, most recently, uh, Ozanamod, which is Celgene's kind of lead pipeline multiple sclerosis drug, got a refuse to file letter from the FDA. So there, there's a lot of screw ups going on uh, going on at Celgene these days that, that people are pretty unhappy with. Let's move on to some other poorly performing students. Who got a D this quarter? So two Ds I'd give out, Biogen and Regeneron, uh, both got Ds. Uh, you know, Biogen, I think you're seeing lower confidence in their Alzheimer's drug, which is in phase three, you know, coupled with the realization that that's basically all they have looking forward. Wait, you're saying that there's a chance that an Alzheimer's drug will not turn up positive results? Rebecca, I know that's shocking to you. I but am yes, shocked. That is true. I mean, the other thing that's going on, I think that people are unhappy with Biogen is, you know, they have really kind of talked up this idea that they're going to do a lot of M&A uh, to kind of expand the company. Uh, and... Uh, and that hasn't happened yet. You know, there's been no deals. So that's kind of getting people upset. And so, Adam, why did Regeneron earn a D? Right. So I think people are tired of the Lenny Schlieffer. He's their CEO. I think they're a little bit tired of his shtick. You know, he, he can be outspoken. He can be arrogant. But I, I think he's not delivering for shareholders. And that's, and that's kind of gendering some, uh, you know, dissatisfaction on the street. And you saw Lenny speak this week at CNBC's Healthy Returns conference. What did he have to say? Yeah, you know, I think he got up there and he talked about how they lowered the price of their cholesterol drug, Praluent, uh, and he basically kind of threw a shot across the bow at the insurance company saying that now that they've lowered the price, you know, the insurance companies really have to open up patient access to the drug. And that's all true. But what he doesn't mention is the fact is that, you know, this all started, this problem started by the fact that they priced it too high to begin with. And like many D students, Regeneron seems to have an inflated sense of its own performance. Right. You know, somebody, Simon quipped to me the other day that Regeneron is a D, which thinks it's an A. Brutal. And how about the top performers? Did anyone actually do well this quarter? So I, I am a tough grader, Rebecca, but I did give Vertex an A minus. And how did they get that? Well, I think that they are just really going full speed uh, ahead on their cystic fibrosis program. You know, competitors are falling farther behind. They're just, they're executing very well. So I think among the large caps, they are definitely doing the best and get the best grade. And so really nobody got an A or an A plus. There seems to not be any grade inflation in your class. None. So looking forward to Q2, you know, is there anything some of these low performers can do to turn this around so that they can still get that uh, good internship this summer? Well, you know, as we mentioned at the beginning, I think M&A, right? I mean, that's the thing that might be the big trigger that, that kind of turns sentiment around. And, you know, we're still waiting for that. You know, now there are pockets of strength in kind of the mid-cap and small-cap biotechs. Then that's where investors are kind of speculating about uh, potential takeout targets. Uh, what's, I think what's interesting now is that there's almost like a growing talk of merger activity or consolidation involving the large pharma and large biotech. Uh, on Wednesday, uh, we heard about Takeda, which is the largest uh, Japanese pharma company, expressing interest in, in acquiring Shire. 
Could that be a springboard for more and larger deals? Yeah, I mean, I spoke to an investor the other day who mentioned, who actually mentioned that Shire was a potential target. This is before the Takeda news came out. You know, and he also mentioned to me, you know, Biogen, maybe even Bristol Myers Squibb as companies that could be acquired. And if we're talking about this kind of large scale consolidation, and who would be doing the consolidating here? To be clear, you know, the companies that people mentioned as sort of being on the other side of that it would be Pfizer. Amgen and Abbey. I think all those are possible companies that could sort of try to do some really large deals. And if they do, they might actually make the cutoff for an A or an A plus in your mythically hard grading scheme. Yeah, let's let's hope the second quarter grades are a lot better. So Mark Zuckerberg the latest corporate villain of the moment, is expected to head to Capitol Hill to undergo the ritualized flogging that is testifying before Congress. So that begs the question, you know, amid persistent concern about high drug prices, why aren't we seeing pharma execs getting dragged in too? So joining us today is Aaron Mershon, who is uh, one of our DC reporters. Hey, Aaron, how are you? Hey, I'm good. How are you, Adam? I'm great. So listen, so when when was the last time a pharma exec got hauled in to testify uh, before Congress? It's been a while. It's been about two years since I think perhaps most famously uh, Congress dragged in Martin Shkreli, who essentially pled the fifth all day as he was asked about raising the price for Dareprim. Uh, and it's been about a year and a half since Heather Bresch came in. That's the Mylan CEO who was sort of grilled for her company's role in raising the price of EpiPen. So we haven't seen anyone dragged in during the Trump administration, right? Not from the pharma industry, no. I think there's been a lot of talk, a lot of criticism, both from Republicans, from Democrats, and certainly from the Trump administration. But not a single CEO has been brought in to testify about what their company's been doing. And Aaron, how, how does this work exactly? You know, if I'm a grandstanding congressman, you know, can I just simply compel a pharma CEO, you know, or someone like Mark Zuckerberg, to, you know, or anybody else to come testify before before a hearing? The rules are a little different in every single committee, but for the most part, it's the committee chairman who set the agenda. So since Republicans control both chambers of Congress right now, it's Republican chairmen who are setting the agenda for these committees. Um, for the most part, they're reluctant to issue subpoenas, especially for sort of major CEOs, although certainly they can do so uh, if they choose to. Uh, but in general, it's it's Republicans, it's chairmen who have all the power to choose those things. So a, a Democrat, for example, maybe a Bernie Sanders, who's particularly outraged about a given CEO's behavior, he really doesn't have any power to bring them in. So by contrast, uh, Bio, the biotech industry trade group, is run by Jim Greenwood. He's, of course, a former Republican congressman. Does that kind of clubby insider racket help keep biotech CEOs out of the hot seat? Yeah, I think you see that across both the biotech and pharmaceutical industries. I think a lot of this does come down to lobbying. You know, these CEOs, they don't want to come in and they there's a reason they pay these high dues to these trade associations. And part of that is to keep them out of the spotlight, keep them out of the hot seat. And it's important to note that you, you we have seen Jim Greenwood, we have seen uh, or at least executives from bio, and we have seen certainly executives from pharma, the Pharmaceutical Research and Manufacturers Association, the trade group for that industry, testify up on the hill. So more than calling in the CEOs, what they're doing instead is turning to the trade association to kind of let them defend broadly for the entire industry. 
And you know, we have midterm elections coming up, Aaron, as you know. Uh, if Democrats win control of the House, do you think that we'll see more hearings involving pharma and biotech CEOs? It's a good question, it's, and it a little bit remains to be seen. I think it depends a bit on who the chairmen are specifically, but certainly as I surveyed some of the lawmakers down here uh, who are sort of poised to take over those chairmanships if the the House or the Senate does slip. I think there's a lot more interest from that side of the aisle in really putting the feet to the fire for some of these executives. There's also, of course, the question of what the point is of all of this, of dragging in a, a pharma CEO to be put on the hot seat. You had a wonderful quote in your story, just scathing, from uh, the executive director of David Mitchell's group, uh, Patients for Affordable Drugs. He said he had very little interest in bringing in CEOs to reiterate talking points that he called, quote, warmed over garbage that can be debunked by a middle schooler with Google, end quote. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a very good question, is sort of what the advocacy community wants to see here. Uh, I think there are a lot of people who feel, especially in an era where Congress really hasn't been able to agree on a lot, that an oversight hearing like this, sort of putting public pressure on executives of these companies could have a lot of value, could could really shine a spotlight on what's going on the same way that I think the EpiPen sort of uh, spectacle did, you know, two years ago or so. Um, but but then there are people like like Ben Wakana and what he said, and I think they are really focused on seeing legislative action, and they don't really want anything that could possibly get in the way of getting that bill to mark up, getting that law passed, signed by President Trump. And I think there's there's a little bit of a split on how valuable an oversight hearing would be. So, Aaron, any advice for biotech or pharma CEOs uh, if they do get hauled in front of Congress? I think the clearest one is easy. Don't fly your private corporate jet down to D.C., Fly commercial. Business class is okay, too. And as we learned from Martin Shkreli, whatever you do, make sure you're not smirking the whole time. You can go down in history as the poster boy for greedy drug company executives, or you can change the system. Yeah, you. Are you listening? Yes. When you read or hear an expert opine on high drug prices or skewer greedy pharma execs, there's a good chance that those words are funded by billionaires John and Laura Arnold. Rebecca just put out a story profiling them. Rebecca, who are these people? So the Arnolds are new money billionaires. They're based in Houston. And John Arnold became a billionaire very young. He was 33 when he passed that mark. He started out at Enron. He was a trader, a whiz kid trader, earned this glowing profile in the New York Times uh, for turning these contrarian bets in, into huge amounts of money. After the collapse of Enron, um, you know, John Arnold was not implicated in that. He moved on to start his own hedge fund. And if you thought he was successful at Enron, his own hedge fund just blew that out of the water. He made huge amounts of money. And then a couple years ago, at age 38, he walked away from it all. He became a philanthropist and uh, has started pouring his money into a variety of causes, uh, including drug pricing. So the drug pricing thing that Arnold is focused on, is that kind of just a white knight billionaire guilt over all the kind of Enron blood money? So he actually made most of his personal fortune after Enron at his wildly successful hedge fund. 
So he wouldn't agree to an interview with us, but to me, from talking to people who've watched him over the years, you know, he strikes me as less guilty and perhaps a little more interested in reshaping the world to make it conform with his technocratic vision. He wants this data-driven, utopian vision of policy crafted by this master class of experts. So how much spending are we talking about here? So the Arnolds have poured close to $50 million into drug pricing initiatives through their foundation. The major recipient um, that's received the most amount of money is ICER, the Institute for Clinical and Economic Review. They're the group that acts as sort of a cost-effectiveness watchdog, puts out reports on whether uh, a drug is fairly priced or not. And increasingly, the Arnolds are putting money into politics, too. And that's David Mitchell's group, right? Right. So the patient advocate, David Mitchell's group, uh, is spending a seven-figure budget um, bankrolled by the Arnolds to try to sway the midterms on the issue of drug pricing. That means supporting candidates who are thought to want to bring prices down and opposing candidates who are thought to want to preserve the status quo. So if the Arnolds could wave a magic wand uh, and change something about drug pricing, you know, what would that be? Uh, that's sort of the biggest mystery here, because in some cases, they are funding groups that disagree with each other. Uh, there's not always a clear agenda based on, on kind of what they're pouring money into. So I think that's the biggest question, and it's what their critics and supporters will be watching. So Rebecca, what was the reaction to your piece? You know, it was interesting. I think people who love the Arnolds and people who hate the Arnolds seem to find something in the story to kind of support their, their view. A uh, few interesting reactions. Uh, John Mariganori, the bio chairman and El Nylum CEO, uh, he tweeted out my story saying, you know, here's the piece on the money behind the anti-biopharma effort. And he asked the, I would say, slightly smarmy question, have they met with scientists or patients at the front lines of innovation? They should. And innovation, of course, that's like the biotech drinking game. Yes. Another interesting reaction, I thought, came from Brian Reed, who works in, in PR in the industry. And, and his point uh, was, you know, can anyone name an influential voice on drug pricing that is not directly or indirectly funded by the Arnolds? You know, if anyone can come up with an uh, influential name, it's a very, very short that's list. A, that's a really good question because it's true. I mean, he seems to have his hands in so many different groups. Everyone seems to have ties back to the Arnolds. So where do you think this goes looking ahead? So I think it's worth keeping in mind that despite all of their spending in this space, the Arnolds are still being massively outspent by pharma. And it's worth watching, you know, how much of a difference are they going to be able to make? Is this going to be money well spent? And do you think that it could help defeat Bob Hugan? You know, he's the former uh, Selgin executive now running for Senate in New Jersey. Now, that'll be a really interesting case to watch. I think Hugan is an obvious candidate for David Mitchell's group to take on. David Mitchell even called him a robber baron uh, when he announced his candidacy. And so I think watching whether we see these types of candidates um, get elected in, in November uh, will be an interesting sign of uh, how this money is being spent. I can't wait to see the attack ads. They'll be brought to you by John and Laura Arnold. Next month, the White House plans to release its big, beautiful plan to reduce prescription drug prices. 
big, beautiful, just like the wall. That's right, Rebecca. Now, among other things, the White House plan is expected to try to narrow the gap between the list price of a drug, that's the price tag on a drug before rebates, and the net price of the drug. That's the amount a drug maker actually receives after factoring in all of these rebates and discounts. Now, with this issue in the news, it's worth considering how does one actually ascertain these drug prices? So the answer to this question is surprisingly complicated. You know, I got thinking about this the other day when a stat colleague of ours, Megan Thielking, slacked me a question. You know, where can I find the cost of a drug? And I sent her my contact at IBM Watson Health, sent the phone number, and I realized as I was doing this, you know, just how weird it was that I couldn't just point her to a website. Yeah, it's true, you know, like there's no Kelly Blue Book uh, the way there is for cars. Right, exactly. And so you put out a query on Twitter, right? Asking how people actually access this information. What did you learn from that? So I got a lot of responses back. And I think it's worth noting that the people who actually responded to me are a very self-selecting group. These are the most sophisticated people, the people that need this information. Look it up. We're talking journalists. We're talking academics. We're talking researchers, people in industry. And I heard a mix of answers. So some people use a mix of both free and paid data sites, places like Redbook, GoodRx, Hippocrates, for injections and other drugs administered by physicians. There's a place called buyandbill.com. Others check retailer sites like Walmart and Costco. Uh, there's some government data on how much Medicaid pays. And others told you, right, that they just rely on numbers cited by reporters in, in news articles. And that's often if, you know, you're a patient advocate or maybe someone a little less savvy or new to the debate uh, that doesn't have a budget for a paid subscription. You know, that's where they're going to get this information. And I think you also heard from uh, Dr. Ben Davies, who's everyone's favorite uh, urologist on Twitter, right? Right. So he shared with us a study pending publication in which he and his collaborators picked up the phone and called pharmacies to assess the cash price for insurance of several medicines that they were studying. So maybe I'm just a millennial, but it's remarkable to me that in 2018, on an issue as contentious and newsy as drug pricing, the only way sometimes to figure out this information is to pick up the phone and make a phone call. And does that you think that's on purpose? I mean, I think it's kind of ingrained in the system. Lack of transparency is part of why we are where we are. I mean, I think it's hard to have a substantive debate on how much a medicine should cost when we can't even figure out how much it does already cost. There should be an app for that. Maybe Damien can scope it out next year at South by Southwest. So that's it for this week. We want to thank Jeff Del Vicio and Hyacinth Empanado. They produced this week's episode. Jeff Del Vicio is also our senior producer. Rick Burke is our executive producer. And we'd love to hear from you. We want to know what you like about this week's episode and what you don't like. Ask us questions, tell us where you're listening from, or just rant about how bad our jokes are. You can do all of this by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And we really do appreciate the feedback, so thank you. And Damien will be back next week. Until then, so long. Bye.